The book of Leviticus, we're going to be looking not only in chapter 23, where we have a summary of these seven main uh, celebrations of Israel, uh, but also the uh, Leviticus 16, we're going to be looking at Numbers as well, to see how they are um, extended and developed. But let's go and look at Leviticus 23. As you know, we have gone through the Sabbath. We've talked about the new moon. We have talked about the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks, also known as Pentecost. And so we have uh, gone through quite a bit of 20, verse, chapter 23 as one of the key passages or chapters regarding the uh, calendar that, we are, uh, that God laid out for Israel. And we've seen the correlations that he used in the New Testament. When we get done with this, we are going to be going into the New Testament, looking at some New Testament events uh, that, uh, and trying to identify them uh, that we uh, celebrate in our Christian calendar. Uh, but we find that overwhelmingly many of the events of Christ of the New Testament are driven and associated with these Old Testament events. And so they overlap. And we saw that with Pentecost. We see that obviously with Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits. We see that overlap that is there with connection to the sacrifice of Christ, with the resurrection of Christ, and of course with the um, coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So we come now to uh, some that, uh, a couple that are going to be in the fall. So these, this cluster that we just completed of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Weeks, those four are clustered in the beginning of the religious calendar, uh, with uh, the first three being in the first month, of, uh, and associated with that first new moon of the, of the rains, whether that new moon is a dark moon or a full moon, we can discuss. So we have that uh, laid out before us. Now we move on to the fall, and then we have a cluster again of three. Boom, boom, boom. Now we saw how Israel, we talked about Israel's calendar was associated largely with their agrarian society, right? And so it was tied to the harvest, and obviously the, first of first, the Feast of First Fruits was about the very first harvest, and the Feast of Weeks is about the ending of the harvest period. So you have the bookends of the spring harvest season, and then, of course, in the fall, we have a similar uh, events of, the, of that harvest season, of the, of the early rains, or latter rains, depending upon how you want to look at it from our perspective of when the year is. And so we come to the uh, three that are listed here in the Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Trumpets, we're going to see, uh, is probably... Uh, Best understood, as it obviously, is a single day. The Day of Atonement is a single day. Uh, they are uh, called today Rosh Hashanah, is the Feast of Trumpets, and Yom Kippur. So if you've heard of those two, that's uh, the modern label, the, the, what we would know of as the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, and the Day of Atonement being Yom Kippur. And of course, Yom Kippur for the Israel today is considered... Uh, by many in Orthodox Judaism, the high day. The Day of Atonement is the highest day of the religious calendar. Uh, it's their highest holy day, uh, even higher than Passover for many of them. Passover has spiritual significance or historical significance for them. There's no doubt about it. But they really focus it on the Feast of Atonement. And we're going to look at that, or the Day of Atonement, not the Feast. Uh, day of Atonement. And so... Um, because of the relationship between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, in, uh, the, there's nothing in the Torah saying that there's anything going on in between extensively, but in the Mishnah, um, their, their own rabbinic teaching is that those days between that, the Feast of Trumpets initiates something that is then completed at Yom Kippur, and that is called the Days of Awe, is the terminology they use for that. And during those, it's kind of like Lent, uh, that we're supposed to be contemplative, we're supposed to be thinking about what 
our, what our relation with God is like, what is inhibiting it, the kinds of things that, that need to be declared upon the scapegoat to be uh, dealt with, to be covered over on the Day of Atonement. It's kind of like an extended uh, confessional, if you will, that for 10 days you're going to be uh, very meditative and thinking about those things that are inhibiting your relationship with, with uh, the God of Israel and, re- and ready to give them and seek uh, atonement for those things. None of that is in God's word. Uh, also, there is Jewish uh, tradition that uh, the Feast of Trumpets is to celebrate the, the day, for the, 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 the completion of creation, or the beginning of creation, depending on who you talk to, but it's uh, to associate with the created, that this is the birthday of the world. And so somehow the world began in the, the first uh, new moon of, of uh, the fall. Uh, and um, kind of interesting, and again, I, that's why I asked you, one of the questions I asked you a long time ago was what phase was the moon in at creation? Because this Feast of Trumpets, if they are correct, and this is the celebration of creation of the of the week of creation being completed, then it sh- then that should give us direction to what a new moon is. That a new moon is more of a full moon and not a, of a dark moon, and because God would not have created it at that part of its cycle, He would have created it at its full cycle, and then that of course delays the Feast of Trumpets, or moves the Feast of Trumpets up two days. Two weeks, I'm sorry, two weeks. And so these are the traditions, though. We don't have any biblical uh, information to go along with that. In fact, what we're going to see is something very different. Uh, This was not necessarily part of what we understand to be the giving of the law at Sinai, especially when we get to the Day of Atonement as we're going to see in Leviticus 16. It's going to be something that's going to come later. Uh, But let's go ahead and begin with the Feast of Trumpets and what's involved here. Uh, It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. So you have a burnt offering at this occasion, and it simply says that this is the blowing of the trumpets. And the trumpets we're talking about here are, are, are more than likely shofars. Okay, remember that Israel were sheep shepherds, sheep caretakers, uh, shepherds, and the shofar, all right, the ram's horn, uh, was during the Feast of Trumpets that this day, now this day we need to delineate and talk a little bit more about. Let's go to Numbers chapter 29. This is where we get more information on this. That's all we really have in Leviticus about the Feast of Trumpets, uh, but we have a little bit more in Numbers 29. And so all we're doing is saying this is a very special month. There's something special about this month, but we don't really know what it's about. It's simply saying you're going to start this month off with an extra Sabbath day where you're all going to blow trumpets, heralding. Now, trumpets are for heralding. And again, many people, uh, and you've heard me say it before, I'm sure, that, that we find hardly any connection with the narrative of Christ out of this. And, but uh, we're going to, and that's why many people say, well, this is referring to the trumpet of the Lord of the end times of the rapture of the church and that event, that that's going to happen at the Feast of Trumpets. And whether it does or doesn't, uh, we'll discuss here in a little bit. Um, but we're also going to see that there is some connections, possibly. We're really, I don't want to give away too much right now, uh, but there were other times of heavenly encounters that we need to locate in, in the Hebrew calendar with reference to Christ. We've located his death and resurrection. That's easy. We've located the giving of the Holy Spirit. That's pretty easy. It's pretty plain and straightforward. But there's some other New Testament events that aren't so straightforward uh, that are even causing a lot of contention even to this day over it. And we're going to talk about them in relationship to this month. 
that this is very likely, I'll just throw this out, this is very likely associated with the birth month of our Lord, uh, this month of, of the seventh month. And, uh, and so let's look at it in, in Numbers 29. It says, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation, you shall do no customary work for you, it is a day of blowing the trumpets, that's all, <laughs> and offering a burnt offering as a sweet aroma of God, to the Lord. Uh, we have the offering to stipulate, one young bull, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year without blemish. Their grain offering shall be the fine flour mixed with oil, and so essentially we're providing all of these, uh, two-tenths of the, the grain offering to go along with the burnt offering, and uh, and one kid of the goats is a sin offering to make atonement for you. And again, the connection to the atonement isn't lost here, is it? But atonement is always associated with burnt offerings. Okay, this is not necessarily leading that these two are connected. The trumpets is connected to the day of atonement. Uh, because every burnt offering is for the purpose of atonement. That is that, that verbiage is there consistently throughout God's word with reference to burnt offerings. But I want you to notice in verse 6 that you're giving all of this, you're doing this celebration besides or in addition to the burnt offering with this grain offering for the new moon. The regular burnt offering with this grain offering and their drink offerings according to uh, their ordinances as sweet aroma and offering made by fire to the Lord. So remember that we talked about the new moon as being day zero. And now you count one, two, three, four, five, six, and then the seventh day is the Sabbath. That's how we establish seven, or the, what the Sabbath is each month is by the new moon. And so the new moon was its own, in its own right, its own Sabbath. So we have five established Sabbaths every month. The new moon plus the four Sabbaths of day 7, 14, 21, and 28. And then the 29th day is going to be another new moon thereabouts, uh, sometimes 20, 29, 30, uh, but thereabouts is going to be a new moon. And so you have uh, this blowing of trumpets besides the new moon. So in addition to that, so what you end up with uh, is really kind of a three-day weekend if you think of the 28th being a Sabbath, and then the, the new moon being a Sabbath, so start the next month, and then you have the Feast of Trumpet being a Sabbath. And even today, there's some question about whether the Feast of Trumpet is one day or two days. Uh, and uh, if you go online, uh, I did that real quick before I came here to see uh, what those days of the week would be this year. And, uh, and they'll say, well, if you're celebrating one day, it's this day. If you're celebrating two days, like most of Judaism, it's these two days uh, from sunset to, to sunset. And so most people are celebrating it two days uh, because of this besides and, and whether it's these, a single day. But essentially what you would have is a, a Sabbath, a Sabbath, and a Sabbath. So you're doing three days of a three-day weekend, no labor, no complicated. So you have three Sabbaths in a row essentially with the new moon, the Feast of Trumpet, uh, and prior to that the normal Sabbath. And so you have this delineated for us. And so verse 6 of 29 tells us that this is in addition to uh, the offerings for the new moon. And so someone's contend, well, then it is the new moon, and that is also a possibility, but it says it's the first day, and so we, we understand that to be either in conjunction with the new moon or the day after. And so this is the, the offering expectation, and it is not really told. What, the, what are we blowing trumpets for? Well, why was Israel always blowing trumpets? Trumpets were always for a purpose. What was the tr blowing of trumpets for? Consistently throughout the law and the period of Israel, blowing the trumpets was for one purpose, and that is to bring Israel all together. It was to, to have a convocation, to have a meeting, is to draw people in. So when you hear the trumpets, you go and you're going to meet. When you hear the trumpet blowing, if there's a... a uh, threat, you hear the trumpet blowing, you go and you meet. If you hear the trumpet blowing and there's something special going on, you go and you meet at the tabernacle. Uh, whenever you hear the trumpet, you, you on occasions or certain times, whenever you hear a trumpet, you send your leadership to the tabernacle because uh, there's going to be a meeting. 
And so the Feast of Trumpets is generally, uh, throughout most of the scriptures, talk about that we're going to meet together, that there is a meeting time. This is a, a call, and, and certainly Israel, uh, in their rabbinic teaching, understand that this is a call to contemplation, to, to uh, the, hence the days of awe. And so we have this calling to be serious and to be uh, preparing ourselves for the Day of Atonement coming. Uh, but that's really not specifically stated in Scripture. We are simply recognizing this is a call of your attention to something uh, very, to, to meet together. And of course, this is why the Christian community has taken the Feast of Trumpets and kind of declared that to be correlated, and you have strong reason for that, right? To be correlated to the trumpet of Thessalonians and of Revelation that says that the last trump, the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive remain, will be caught up together to meet him in the, in, with the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So that's a meeting. We're called to a meeting. And they often associate that with the Feast of Trumpets. And that the, since there is no strong correlation to other events in Christianity, that we can anticipate, at least to some degree, that the Feast of Trumpets is a very strong candidate, <laughs> there's a word for you, a strong candidate for the period of time of the rapture. But we, and so when you get to the fall and you see the Feast of Trumpets and you recognize this has to be correlated with a new moon, uh, you're going to have two days to, well, two or three or four days to pick from of which one you're going to look at. You're going to either look at the full moon prior or the new moon, what we call new moons today, that the Jewish community is celebrating, or two weeks after where there's going to be another full moon. And so it depends on which way you think they're off on their calendar if you believe the new moon is a full moon and not a dark moon. And so we have three options here in, in essentially in the fall with an expectation that that is going to occur. And so I always tell people we believe that Christ could come at any moment, uh, but boy, in the fall, I sure am more attentive. Because <laughs> I just think that, that's, that there is some good argumentation along that line and the association. So we have that association of the trumpets. We have very little else. And that's why Jewish teaching doesn't want to, remember, doesn't want to acknowledge Jesus. His first coming certainly doesn't want to talk about his second coming, right? And so they've correlated this with the creation. And I'm really okay with that to a degree as well. Uh, why? Because remember that Christ's arrival in heaven is talking about, what, a new creation that that we're going to have his bride coming in. And again, the shofar is used in that symbolage as well. And so we have all of this layered into there. I'm okay with thinking that we're going to shift from worshiping God, focus on him being the creator in Revelation chapter 4, to Jesus Christ being the redeemer in Revelation chapter 5 with a new song that is sung in heaven. And now he takes the throne. And so... Uh, if that happens at a, at a annual celebration of the, uh, or associated with the annual celebration of the age of the earth, of the day of, of creation, uh, it would make some sense, but it's not necessary. But certainly the concept of a, of a bridegroom coming for his bride and the blowing of trumpets associated with that as well. This is a congregation. We're, we're blowing the trumpets to congregate you, to bring you together. And so Israel's being brought together. Do they know what they're being brought together for on this day? Not necessarily. Okay, and so we have, uh, and so they kind of made some stuff up, uh, that this is where you're being brought together to celebrate that God created the whole earth on this, finished it on this day, or started it on this day. Uh, the first day of creation, and uh, uh, because remember, it's not a Sabbath. It's not. It, it can never fall on a Sabbath or a normal Sabbath. It's going to fall after the new moon, and so we find the first day of the of the month, not the seventh day of the month. So it's associated with the new moon. 
And so we find that uh, the Feast of Trumpets is held. Um, it's usually in September. I think it's September 6th and 7th this year. Uh, if I remember, I just, I didn't write it down. I should have done that. My memory says the 6th and 7th this year. Uh, so it's usually early September uh, to mid-September, somewhere in that two-week period. And again, if we're off on the moon, then you can shift that two weeks later or two weeks earlier. So in the in mid to late August and uh, or to mid late September, but we have that uh, laid out before you. Any questions on the Feast of Trumpets? All right, let's go on to the Day of Atonement. Now the Day of Atonement again. <coughs> there's some question here. Of course, this is tied. It is the tenth day of the month, which again would make it a midweek service, right? Because the seventh day of the month is the Sabbath. And so this is the tenth day of the month, and very deliberate. And so it's not associated with a Sabbath, but yet it becomes its own Sabbath. So let's read about the Day of Atonement back in Leviticus chapter 23. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. You shall do no work on that same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people permanently. Please notice that. For any, uh, any person who does any work on that same day, that person will be, I will destroy from among his people. Wow. This is, this is very strong language being used here. You shall do no manner of work. For it shall be a statue forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So the ninth day is coming to a close. I begin afflicting my soul, and that uh, takes the form of many different things. Certainly not a feasting. So certainly you are fasting, uh, and the whole concept, and with the addition of these strong statements that we don't find with the other ones. It says, oh, this holy convocation, do no work, customary work in it. Now we have these very strong statements. If you're not afflicting your soul, if you're, not, if you're doing customary work, you're going to be cut off, you're going to be destroyed. That's why Israel makes this the highest holy day of their year. And by the way, uh, the Feast of Trumpets is the beginning of their calendar year, okay, geopolitically. So their New Year's is the Feast of Trumpets. And so their New Year's celebration, if it is the Days of Awe, what is their New Year's celebration? Our New Year's celebration is what? Being drunkenness and parties and being raucous and loud and fireworks and all those. They begin their New Year with 10 years of thoughtful meditation on their sin that needs to be covered. That's how they start their new year. Uh, if they're going to follow the rabbinic teaching about the Feast of Trumpets, days of awe leading to the Day of Atonement. So here we are um, on this tenth day where it's even reissued that on the ninth day you should know it's coming. It's not going to be a surprise that at evening you're going to start and this day is going to be set aside as the Day of Atonement. And Again, the question is, uh, when did this get instituted, and was it part of the original law? And the indication from Scripture, uh, is from Leviticus itself, is that that is not the case. This is a, uh, there was a Day of Atonement, certainly, but the, the, the extent of this instruction is in reaction to something else that happened in Israel's history. So let's go back to Leviticus 16 and see what that was. Why is God so adamantly uh, concerned about this? And this is a very special day. Yeah, this is the only day of the year that the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies. Now that's significant, right? This is the only day of the year the high priest enters the Holy of Holies. So let's go back to Leviticus 16. And... We're going to find out something that's going to move us even farther back in Leviticus. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after 
the death of the two sons of Aaron where they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. There's the setting. When did God give these instructions about the Day of Atonement? After the two sons of Aaron died. So this is a historical event that happened. It wasn't associated with the giving of the law. The tabernacle was already built. The priestly vestiges were already in place. They were already in the customs of going through the sacrificial system, right? Those were already uh, ongoing. And then his two sons, uh, Aaron's two sons, brought this incense before the Lord in a profane manner, and they were destroyed for that. So let's go back in Leviticus again. <laughs> I know I'm working you backwards, but we're going to come back. Let's go back to Leviticus 10 and see this happen. Let's begin verse 1. It says, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Very important phrases. They died before the Lord. The Lord sent fire out from somewhere, uh, from the Lord. Uh, and we think, well, that's from heaven. I don't think so, because they're offering it before the Lord the profane fire, so they weren't in heaven, and, and God sent fire from him and devoured them. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified, and so Aaron held his peace. And so then they have some other instructions, they carried them out, how to get rid of them, how to how to make up for some of this. There's going to be no mourning, no weeping over there, you're, even though you're their dad, you can't be sorry for this. Uh, and then we get down to verse 8. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, not to Moses. The Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generation that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean, that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. The apparent problem was these guys did not necessarily do this intentionally. They did it in a stupor. In their drunken state, they grabbed the wrong incense and went to the, and did the wrong thing in the wrong place. And so God says, from now on, no priests can drink alcohol. None, zero. No alcohol, no wine, no intoxicating drink at all. Not you, not your sons with you. Um, never. You're not going to drink it. And when you go into the tabernacle meeting, um, you, you're going to die. Because if it, if it confuses you, if it uh, debilitates your mental capacities, but not only in terms of your execution of your uh, role in offering sacrifices, but also in the execution of teaching. And so it will skew your teaching if you teach in this capacity of diminished mental ability because of alcohol. And so because you're the teachers of Israel, because you're the worship leaders of Israel, no alcohol is to be consumed by you or your family. Don't even have it in your house. There's no place there. And we find that similarly brought over in the New Testament, right? What does it say about those who want to be bishops. What does it say of them? Yeah, don't be given to wine. You're a teacher of God's people. Um, you should not be given to wine. And you might say, well, didn't Paul tell Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake? Yes, a little bit of wine. But essentially, you should not have drunkenness. But if we're going to use any kind of alcohol, use it medicinally only. That's the only acceptable use of alcohol um, biblically, for bishops, deacons, is, is a medicinal use. And so take your NyQuil, and, which is really strong alcohol, uh, but let's leave the rest of it alone. And so this was the event. So Nadab and Abihu apparently were intoxicated, did the wrong thing, and walked in in. in where did they go? Where was this profane fire, this incense that they were bringing? Well, where is the altar of incense? 
And where is this all happening? This is in the holy place. So let's go back to Leviticus 16 now. See what God says. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. I would contend with you that because Leviticus 16 connects this further instruction of God on the Day of Atonement to the event of Nadab and Abihu, that what they had done is they had gone in not just to the holy, but into the very room, the inner room, what we call the Holy of Holies, into the very room of the ark. And it was from the ark, from the mercy seat, that fire came and struck them dead. And it was from there they had to be extracted. And hence all of the work is like, how are we going to get them out of there? They've been killed by God. Fire, they offered this incense. And so now we have Moses telling Aaron, listen. Now remember, God told Aaron, not Moses, no more intoxicating drink. Let's not let that happen again. Or you will die. You're the teacher of Israel. You're the leader of the worship. You don't do it in any diminished capacity due to alcohol. Or you will die. You're not giving me glory. Now, God comes to Moses and said, listen, you go tell Aaron that you don't get to come into the Holy Holies whenever you think you should. And now, now we have this further instruction saying that uh, I'm going to appear in a cloud above the mercy seat, but it's not just going to be any old time you come in. Uh, you're going to be, it's only going to be allowed once. And so here we go. Don't come in just any time. Uh, verse 3, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of young bulls, a sin offering, and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash, with a linen turban. He shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. And make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness." And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bulls of sin offering, which is for himself. Do you get that repeated? How many times has that been repeated now? Four times? It's for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, then the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering which is for the people bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull. And sprinkle on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins, and so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. When he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the living goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the sin of Israel, of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and it shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land. Kind of interesting. And he shall release the goat in the wilderness. 
Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of me, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, shall leave them there. He shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out, and after his burnt offering and burnt offering of the people, make atonement for himself and the people, the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he will release the goat. Remember, some guy, one guy, was selected to take the goat out to the wilderness. As the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought into the make atonement, shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn in fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes. You get the idea? <laughs> it shall be a statue forever. For your, in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls, you shall do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you, for on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. You shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, put on the linen clothes and the holy garments. And he basically talks about how to make it generationally. So we, we begin by understanding that this the specifics of this single day where we can go inside the veil to the mercy seat uh, was introduced after Nadab and Abihu event. It was not from the beginning. All of this was saying after the Nadab and Abihu tragedy. Now God says you don't come in just any day. Only one day out of the year, and it is going to be on the Day of Atonement, the 10th day, and whether that was related to when Nadab and Abihu did their thing, uh, we, we can maybe surmise, but it doesn't stipulate that. But on this 10th day of the Day of Atonement, we have all of these extensive instructions that Aaron himself must be purified, his whole family has to be purified. That's just to... Uh, start things off. Uh, that's what the bull offering was for. And then we have the, the goat offering, which is for the people, and that has to be presented. So first he goes in, so he's actually going in and out of the veil a couple of times there for once. With, and so he's got sweet incense, he's got the bull offering blood, he's got then the goat offering blood. So he's going in and out on this one day only. And we have a very special washing before. You're going to work where these special clothes are only worn on that occasion. You're going to go in and do these events. When you're all done, you're going to wash. You're going to put those away, leave them there. Um, you're going to wash again, and then you're going to go out there and do more sacrifices out there uh, on the altar where, you're in, where most sacrifices were done, on the altar, right, out in the outer courtyard. And so this is all about what are you going to do to gain access to God's atonement and, in terms of locality, the mercy seat. You cannot miss a day of atonement. It is about covering sin of the uncleanness of Israel, even though they're the people of God and a nation of priests, the uncleanness of Israel and the honoring of the mercy seat, of access to this cloud above the mercy seat, and I believe it is out of that that the fire of the Lord of Judgment on Nadab and Abihu came. And it is there that it says, if you do this wrong, you will die. Now this is going to come up a little bit later on as well. So once a year, you have this privileged access into the throne room, if you will, of God's presence among them, uh, access to the mercy seat. And we, you know that as the Ark of the Covenant. Right, so the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. Those are the same things. Because remember the cherubim on top of the Ark stretch out their wings and that forms the mercy seat. Is there the wings of the cherubs, uh, cherub on one on each side, stretching it out over, making a seat in between them, uh, couched between the two cherubs. And so we find that that is the mercy seat. So we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant here. And the capacity. Now the Ark of the Covenant has is associated with a lot of pretty interesting things. Remember that when the Ark of the Covenant was captured during the days of Eli and the, Palest the Palestinians, oh, sorry, the Philistines took it and put it in the temple of Dagog, the, uh, their god, and then it fell over and then it broke. And so then they sent it back and they got boils all over them. 
And so that's the power associated. And Israel itself associated the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, with the power of God. And so we find that uh, in Scripture. And so this, and remember also the event with David wanting to bring it into the Jerusalem. And the guy reached up there to steady it because they weren't carrying it like they're supposed to. They're putting on a cart. It kind of got wobbly. He put out his hand. He died. And so um, God takes that very seriously. Israel never really saw the Ark of the Covenant. You might say, well, how could that be? They never saw the mercy seat? No. Even when they were traveling, what was to happen to the mercy seat when they broke down the tabernacle? Do you know? It was shrouded in a very special cloth reserved for it so that it was shrouded. So when you talk about it being carried off to battle, it would not have been carried off without that shroud. It would always be a shrouded thing. And remember that um, they weren't supposed to look at it. They weren't supposed to have that kind of access to it, free access. And, and also remember that when the Philistines sent the ark back, that the one town received the ark, and, but they looked inside. And thousands of them died because they looked inside um, and violated it. Whether they were doing that with the idea of did the Philistines do anything to the contents or out of curiosity, um, they died. And so a lot of things associated with the ark in Israel's history. So here we are at the mercy seat, and this is really the first event like this recorded for us in Scripture. And so this is the Day of Atonement. When sins and transgressions are covered, by the blood of the sacrifice by the high priest in the Holy of Holies before the mercy seat. But I want you to notice what prefaces all of this. The Day of Atonement only works if. What is the if condition of the people for the Day of Atonement? Nadab and Abihu were destroyed because they, didn't, they weren't in the right condition of, of themselves. What was the condition required of Israel? They had to be in affliction. What is affliction? I mean, this is, in Romans it talks about uh, that, that um, godly sorrow produces repentance. Um, it is the idea of being sorry that I'm going to afflict my soul because it's a recognition that I'm a dirty, rotten, unclean uh, sinner and I'm bringing so much filth to this relationship with God and so I'm going to afflict my soul during this time. That is, I'm going to punish myself. Not that that punishment removes the sin. And this is different than those that want to punish themselves as to make, uh, what's that term? Penance, yes, thank you. To make penance for their sin. That somehow it undoes sin. That's not what this is about. This is about being serious-minded, being thoughtful, and being sorrowful for your sin. So that you can enter into and have the sacrifice. And so... Uh, we come to the book of Hebrews, and this becomes one of the key teachings in the book of Hebrews for the New Testament church of who Jesus Christ is. How superior is to this? Well, how is he superior to this? Well, this high priest, what did he have to do first? He had to give a sacrifice for his own sin. He had to cleanse himself first not only through the washing and the special apparel, but also by offering this bowl offering for him, blood sacrifice for himself, sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat, sprinkling it on the altar, doing all this for him and his family's sin. Now, how much superior is our high priest? Jesus Christ is our high priest. And so Hebrews goes back to the Day of Atonement and says, listen, we have a high priest that doesn't have to have a sacrifice for his own sins because he's perfect. He is completely holy to the Lord. He is sinless. He is, he is not unclean in any manner. And so he is our high priest. 
And so there is no bull offering anymore, is there? Because you don't need that offering. Jesus Christ didn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sin ever. Why did Mary and Joseph take Jesus and offer the two turtle doves? Do you know? Was that for him? No, it was for her. That sacrifice wasn't for Jesus. That's a sacrifice for her uncleanness that she was supposed to give this. And, um, and so uh, after giving birth, so she was supposed to do this for her, not for him. Jesus Christ had no reason to offer a sacrifice ever the entirety of his life. Think about that a little bit. For there was no sin to offer offering to cover. He was the covering for other people's sin, for the people's. So he serves as high priest and the sacrifice, and he has access to the holy place, to the mercy seat of God. And he keeps reporting this to us. I came from my Father. I came from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. I came from the Father. I've sent from the Father. What is he claiming? He's claiming, I have had access to the mercy seat, the real one. Remember that when Moses was given the the plans for the tabernacle that God showed him the temple in heaven as the pa- and say pattern after this. This is the original. This is the archetype. Pattern it after what I show you in heaven. Well, Jesus Christ says, that's where I came from. I came from the original Holy of Holies and I've come to you to be this perfect sacrifice and to be your high priest that will do this on your behalf, but I don't need the bull sacrifice. And so the Day of Atonement has transformed, hasn't it? It's not what it used to be because Jesus Christ has fulfilled this role entirely. So he goes into the access into the Holy of Holies. And uh, if you want to think about the way it talks about purifying, 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 if there's anything that the Day of Atonement, and I believe the Feast of Trumpets, if you want to do a historical study, would be the completion of of the tabernacle and and the vestiges and the instruments and all that and the purification of it. And he says, now you're going to do this generationally on one day. But the Day of Atonement itself is all about covering sin. But notice, it's not covering everyone's sin. It's covering those who are sorry. If you're not afflicting your soul, you are cast out. You either are sorry and get atoned for, or if you are not sorry, you get removed from the people. You get cast out. You choose. You have the right to choose, right, from this morning? whether you want to be sorry and thoughtful about your sinfulness or whether you want to be negligent about that and, and take it lightly and not think about it and then you're not going to be part of the people of God. You cannot miss the requirement when you get to the New Testament where John the Baptist, then Jesus, then the disciples repent for the kingdom of heaven's hand. Repent. Repentance is the precursor of atonement. You cannot have a covering for your sin as great as Jesus is the high priest, as perfect as the sacrifice was of his blood, as, as the, 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 the scapegoat, as, as precious as that separation is, the scapegoat separation of us into an uninhabited land, um, of us from our sin, that it just goes off and, and is separated from us, from the east is from the west, the Bible says, uh, so is our sin separated from us by the working of Jesus Christ. So not all of that is wonderful and powerful and effectual, but only for those that are afflicted in their souls. And so this one day out of the year, and I'm fine with taking 10 days to get ready for this one day to think about the fact of how much of a sinner am I? Because what is the high priest supposed to do with his hands on the scapegoat? Out loud, he's supposed to declare the sins of Israel. That could be a really long list, right? You know, um, but he's doing that rep- in a representative form, right? He is doing it in a representative form, declaring, here are the sins of your people, Father. I'm declaring them on the head of the scapegoat. 
separate these sins from your people and make them clean. And this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. But he does it for those that are ready to be sorry and confess that. And thus, sorrow over sin is a necessary element for the covering of sin. We do not cover up sin that is unrepentant of, that is unconfessed, that is unafflicting of our souls. If it doesn't bother you that you're doing it, then God isn't forgiving you. He's not covering it up. The blood of Jesus Christ doesn't cover that. And thus the prerequisite of the Day of Atonement is a powerful message to us. And, it's, and do we have to celebrate it? Well, we should be celebrating on a regular basis. We should be confessing our sins. I think 1 John 1, 9, written to Christians, not on Christians. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is the atonement, the covering. And all these other sacrifices are done throughout the year. There's lots of burnt offerings, burnt offerings, but there's only this one time that you're going to go into the mercy seat. One time in your calendar, year, that you're going to go to the mercy seat. And I will contend with you is that we have uh, this personified in Jesus Christ. It is emphatic in the book of Hebrews and uh, while we may not necessarily need to celebrate Yom Kippur um, in an Israeli fashion, we can certainly set that time aside to celebrate um, all of our spiritual birthdays. If there's any day to celebrate the day I got saved, it's Yom Kippur. It is the Day of Atonement. Of the day that I afflicted, I was afflicted before the Lord, I was sorry for my sin, and I sought his atonement by the high priestly act of Christ in the very mercy seat throne room of God. And I think it's appropriate for us to celebrate that. You know, I can celebrate the day in July that, that I accepted Christ as a 10-year-old. I can celebrate that, um, but it becomes a very personal thing, and it's hard for the, you know, I don't expect the church to do that, uh, to know what day, and maybe we should have put that on the, we all have our physical birthdays on the, um, in the directory, we should have put all your spiritual birthdays, we could celebrate it all with you. Or we could have one day a year to celebrate our spiritual rebirth. We know the historical events of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the giving of the Holy Spirit, but when did it become yours? When do we celebrate when it became ours. Okay, we have a little song. Right? Do you remember? What day of the week did you get saved? Did you accept Christ? What day of the week? Well, now the days of the week are all screwed up because now they're all, no. Uh, we have a little song. It was on a, what day um, that I found Jesus. You guys remember that little tune? It was on a Sunday when I found you. And when we sing it, we'd have you stand up on that day. Uh, and that would be a great song to sing on the Day of Atonement. Wouldn't it? To celebrate the day and commemorate. It's really not a celebration. It's a commemoration of the day that I humbled myself before God and received him as my Savior and Lord. Because that is the preface, the, pre the requirement that is stringently stated in these instructions is you had better come to this day with godly sorrow, afflicting your soul, fasting, that you are coming weeping over your sinful state, recognizing your uncleanness so that God will atone for you. And if there's any Christianized version of Yom Kippur, I believe that it is that. It is you know what, I recognize the historical events of Christ on my behalf, but I think one day a week it's okay for the, one day a week, one day a year, it's, it's maybe a really good idea for the church to set aside and, and remind ourselves we were sinners and Christ saved us. We received that salvation, that atonement, when he did it for you individually. And we could try to do that throughout the year, but what a great idea is to just have this once a year for the church to remind and maybe to share testimonies. This is how 
I received Christ as my Savior. This is when I saw myself as the worst of sinners. This is when my atonement happened, to share testimony of that. Because that is the application of the historical work of Christ to the individual's life. For each of us had a day of atonement when Christ took our sin and covered it in the mercy seat throne room of God. He did it historically and accomplished it for all who would believe. And that premise of belief is repentance. And so the day of atonement is the only one of these seven that is not a feast day. We don't have a meal. We don't feast in that sense. We are afflicted because it is a reminder that we are unclean, that we are unholy. God is the holy, holy, holy one. And if there's any reminder of it, Nadab and Abihu was the reminder of, you'd better be very sure that you are sorry for your sin. And if you take religion lightly, you will die. If you think this is a game that you play with God, you can kind of trick him or fool him into covering your sin that you're not really sorry for, you're the fool. You might as well be a drunkard because you have no spiritual discernment. If, and so godly sorrow produces repentance, and repentance is the human element of the atonement. That's the human prerequisite for the atoning work of Christ. The sacrifice has been made, the, the victory over the death by the resurrection has been accomplished, the application is ready to be made, and, and it waits for the repentant ones to go in before the Lord. And so um, I'm okay with celebrating it, but Yom Kippur, uh, but, I, but certainly not from a, the Jewish perspective that don't recognize that there's an atonement anymore, uh, don't recognize Jesus Christ as their atonement. Uh, but uh, what do you do with sin if you're just sorry for it and don't have atonement? You're in despair. And so David Atonement, while it's a serious matter, is also uh, a wonderful thing to be separated from your sin. Have the goat go wandering off and celebrate the, the, at the end of the Day of Atonement, I'm clean. The beginning of the Day of Atonement, I was dirty and sorry. The end of the Day of Atonement, I'm clean and rejoicing. I don't need a feast to do that, but no, no customary work. I'm going to take that day and, and reflect upon uh, the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for these reminders and these powerful images that in their time spoke aforehand of your work that you would accomplish and in our time uh, echo back to your work on Calvary's cross when we think of the veil of the temple being torn uh, at your sacrifice that access has been granted to us and Lord we marvel at that access that we have to your very mercy seat not by our own good works but by the blood of the lamb by the high priest that did not have to sacrifice for his own sins first, that did not have to wash, did not have to put on the linen, that could enter into your holy place because that's where he came from, because he was without sin. Lord, we thank you for such a wondrous salvation. And Lord, we pray that we might not neglect, that we would, that we would be sure to confront people with their need to have sorrow over sin, to weep over their condition, and that we wait upon that time when you have truly convicted them that they seek it, they seek forgiveness, they seek the atonement in a sober manner, in a serious manner, and in, 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 with tears, recognizing their need. Oh, Lord, help us to wait for those days and not try to do what Nadab and Abihu do, did and try to party people into the holy place. For we know that it is detestable to you. 
So we pray that we might be careful ourselves on a regular basis to confess our sins to you, that we might seek your cleansing, the covering of our sin by your sacrifice. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.